By the way, hold on. One quick aside to totally funny random story yeah. or, or thing I want you to help me with, actually. So I, in 15 months, 14 months, I'm going to be 40, turning 40. And I want to have like a massive extravaganza party in St. Louis, maybe even like a conference style party, like invite everyone, everyone listening, everyone on Twitter. And I'm trying to get Nelly to like perform <laughs> at my birthday. <laughs> Why Nelly? Was Nelly your favorite growing yeah, up? Yeah, St. Louis. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so during COVID, I'm part of YPO here. They got him. And I don't want to say how much, but it was like, it was like pretty cheap, like cheap to the point where I was like, oh, like I could probably do that as a part of the birthday expense. Now, apparently that's all over. And now it's like six figures to book. Like it's really, really? yeah. So this whole conversation around crowdfunding got me thinking like, I need to put a budget together. I'm going to go on Twitter and here and be like, come to my party, donate (laughs) money towards the the Nelly fund to Jesse to have Nelly perform at Jesse's 40th birthday party. What's up, everyone? I'm Alex Lieberman. Yo, this is Jesse Pucci. And this is The Crazy Ones. Dude, what a, what an awesome week. We uh, we recorded the episode about you selling your company and then just like the, the outpouring of congrats and hello emails came in. Pretty it's wild, crazy. right? I, you know, I don't, re- I don't get overwhelmed often. That's not a feeling I'm used to feeling. And I think like it's just this whole month has been or January has been just overwhelming because, you know, first we told all the former employees who are all getting checks for the sale. Then two weeks later, there was, uh, you know, the PR announcement. Then that thing, which you didn't, which you didn't know about originally. I knew I didn't know exactly when it was coming out. You told me, of course. Uh, But but then like, you know, you just you you know this and starting a company like so many people, your first vendor who sold you IT computers to your like first client. This is everyone's there. It's all the human experience. And then yours, your trick of uh, say hi. And uh, we've gotten hundreds of emails that are just so touching. It's just I, I, I no joke because again, we were, we typically do these episodes as like, I don't know, 40 minutes. We try to keep it to that. And now I'm rethinking everything given the last episode. I don't know. It was like a, an hour and 20 minutes and about an hour and five minutes in. I was like, if anyone's out there, if anyone's still listening, just write hi to the crazy ones at morningbrew.com. And by the way, if you're listening, <laughs> everyone's going to hate me for this. Write hi at the crazy ones at morningbrew.com and we'll get back to you. I'm sorry, Michaela, Dan, and everyone else who's on the listserv. <laughs> um, but we, like, I literally thought we were going to get 10 emails and we've gotten hundreds. And some of them were people just saying hi, but some of them were like the most thoughtful email. So I'm actually looking at the inbox right now and I'm just going to call out a few people like, Dave F, uh, Max M, Cullen M, Justin W, Amanda J, Carolyn M, Abby J. Like the list goes on. The the most ridiculous email that I think we got touching, absurd, slightly strange was the email of the person who's currently <laughs> buying an Ampush t-shirt off of Craigslist or Etsy. Did you, you, yeah, did you see that I, one? You sent it to me and I couldn't believe it. Yeah, but that, I didn't know if you looked at it. Yeah, that like it was like apparel from a couple of our offsites in the middle of the decade and like the OG Ampush shirt. Like it was, uh, it blew my mind. <laughs> it was insane. Well, what, you know, what the last week told me is that um, we're doing something really cool this show that we have amazing listeners and that we just continue to be on this journey 
kind of climbing up the mountain of building the best startup show on planet earth that helps people build their businesses. Yeah. And so we're really I, humbled by all the support. Two things that came up for me in, in just a very real way. I think one, you know, I always call it the gravitational force of company building. And it's just, it's not something I realize. And I think a lot of people who think about starting a company don't get this until you do it. You know, it starts as a speckle of dust and then five speckles of dust. And the next thing you know, it's a few rocks. And like, I remember the first time I saw someone out in public um, where I had an Ampush t-shirt on and they were like, oh yeah, Ampush. Like they, it was a thing that wasn't me and, and it was separate. And I had to see those t-shirts on on Etsy. But it's, I think it's a reminder of like the one of the coolest parts of the entrepreneurial journey is building something that like is beyond you and outlasts you. And 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 I just encourage people to to think about it that way because it's so powerful. I think the other thing about all those emails for me, you know, you you and I obviously don't do this for money. We, I, I spiritually, I want to help other people learn and grow, and I think entrepreneurship is a great canvas to do that. And so to see and feel that we're actually doing that with all this stuff of you and I talking, like it it really uh, it filled my cup quite a bit. So yeah, it was was amazing. So thank you all. And uh, write us in if you haven't yet. We want to say hi. We want to learn about you. And without further ado, let's uh, continue to give you all value and hop into this episode of The Crazy Ones. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Okay, we are recording. What episode is this? This is episode 21 of The Crazy Ones. As per usual, my co-host Jesse is late. And the worst part about it is there was expectation setting that set him up for failure. He was like, guys, he was like, guys, I'm doing a cycle reboot on my computer because that's been the excuse for the last month and a half is it's it's a computer issue that requires a, a cycle. He did the the cycle and he was five minutes late. So what's the excuse this time? No excuse, man. I got I got some development areas, you know, we all have things we got to get better at. I, I went deep on this with my coach yesterday, and it was, uh, as as per the usual, it was, like, very, I learned a lot about myself, and, like, because it's not, obviously, the this being late is a symptom of a whole variety of other issues, right? Like, my time, like, my time is super tight in my calendar, you know that, um, I overschedule myself, and I'm not good at saying no to things, like, I took two calls today that I, that probably weren't the best, you know, weren't ideal and aligned, no um, offense to those people that he spoke no, to. No, no, no. It's it's nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with me, you yeah. know, pri- like uh, getting it all right, it, prioritizing. And and like, it was funny because oftentimes when you do coaching, there's like two sides of the coin. This is just a t- little tidbit when you get into the episode. One side of the coin is like just highly tactical and sort of like if you make a small habit adjustment, it can sort of solve the problem you're having. And then the other one is literally the polar opposite, which is there's some deeply rooted like issues right and and like confronting them and absolving yourself like a kind of and so i'll tell you i'll share both of them like how it went you know on the on the deep side i'm a type seven on the enneagram and i need we need to do an episode about enneagram and conscious leadership but by the way i did the enneagram after jesse sent it to me and i'm a seven also yeah so 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 this will you'll learn about yourself in this like one of our biggest fears like a deep down is emptiness it's actually like the one thing we're trying to not deal with and feel so so we have a tendency to 
every minute has to have like some stimulation and it has to have something that so literally like when I did this just now, I, I said that to you guys, I, I, I changed, I wasn't wearing my turban. So I tied my turban in the middle of it. My marketing manager for growth assistant came up with a great idea for how we can engage like agencies. Cause a big priority this year is to, and he started, and I just started slacking with him. And so I was like, it's this constant need for stimulation and not, and, and the, the fear that it's, it's trying to solve is that I'm afraid. And it's so true of emptiness. I, I'm not okay. Just sitting there being still that's scary for me. And there was like, just kind of like, can you let that go? And can you embrace emptiness? Is it okay to have an hour in your calendar that's not scheduled, Jesse? And, and like, in theory, my head says yes, but then my body, you know, my actions don't do that. So that's kind of the deep side of it is like getting comfortable with emptiness, emptiness of my calendar. Uh, there's another cool thing he said, which is like, it seems like you're more committed to doing than being. So if you were more committed to being, you would care more about how you showed up and like showed up energized and not late or whatever. Instead, you're more committed to doing. You wanted to talk to your marketing manager, then jump on the podcast. So anyway, that's like the, then the holy tactical thing. One of the things we came at the end of the conversation was, and I told my, my EA to do it this morning, starting officially February 21st, he asked me, he was like, are you, will you block off two hours to start your day every day? No meetings, partly to get your stuff done, but partly to comp you know like 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 warm up the engine before you rev it up then what you know yeah versus jumping into things and then being frantic all day which is uh, has been a lot of my experience so far this year and uh and i was like i can't do this i'm traveling and he's like i was like i'll do it march and he's like eh, that doesn't work for me jesse like uh, we eventually negotiated to february 21st so as of february 21st i'm gonna block off 9 to 11 every morning i'm gonna start that way and it's gonna hopefully create a little bit more breathing room to not overfill my calendars and that's the tactical side so anyway it's just interesting that's how coaching works it, but it, it just it means a lot to me that uh, you know my time and this show are maybe a little part of the motivation that are leading to kind of conversations with your coach about something that you want to to grow with and or to work on and i mean it sounds like you have you have a little bit of a plan to get there i'm just also curious one last question is do you bake uh, buffers into your calendar? Like, do you leave any extra time in between meetings, like a five minute buffer in case something runs over or no? My EA does, and I don't respect them. <laughs> you, ju you just treat it as that is the I'm like, amount I got free time. Hey, you want to talk real quick? Like I called Vinny, you know, my brother for 15 minutes to catch up on three things that him and I had been wanting to talk. Like uh, it's, yeah. it is a, it, it, you know, we were joking about it yesterday or not joking. There was, there was like, well, the joke, it's not a joke. It was like, it feels I've never drank alcohol a day in my life. I've never taken drugs. I've never done a gamble. And I tend to have like, you know, but I was like, well, from what I've heard about what an addiction feels like, this feels like an addiction. I am addicted oh, to yeah. filling my calendar because I, even though I know, I knew I shouldn't have been talking to my marketing manager in between the time I messaged you guys and I was tying my turban and I got back on the show, but I was addicted. I had to like fill that five minutes in between the folds of my turban with messaging him back and forth. And so it feels like something that's almost hard to control. Um, and the other analogy we gave, which was like kind of fun, interesting and scary. It was a fun, is like, I felt like I was rolling down a hill. Like, I feel like I'm rolling down a hill around this yeah. category and I just can't stop myself. Like, I know I'm rolling. I know I'm a little out of control. And so it was a really interesting coaching session, but. Well, well, this is why you pay uh, Dave the big bucks and I'm excited for February 21st. We'll keep chatting about it as you make progress. Let's do it. Cool. Okay. Episode time. On this episode of The Crazy Ones, I am going to give Jesse a little bit of an update on my ridiculous uh, plunger backyard game, The Plunge. Some 
tweaks to the strategy, um, one of those being going into crowdfunding and launching this on Kickstarter. We'll talk a little bit about the crowdfunding model and some of like the biggest crowdfunding blowups and success stories, and maybe uh, a few ideas we have around crowdfunding in general. So let's do this thing. Yeah. The, oh, are you going to start? Why don't you, you're going to share some of the cool crowdfunding stories you learned about, right? You want me to start with that? I think it's a cool way to start. And then I want, I have okay. questions for you. Okay. So I've gone down this crowdfunding rabbit hole because <clears throat> the plunge originally, I was going to launch it on its own site. I was going to market it myself. We can talk about in a little while why I didn't think that was actually going to be the right strategy. And so now I'm going to be doing crowdfunding on Kickstarter for the plunge, I think in May or June. But in doing research on Kickstarter, there's a few interesting things I learned. First of all, I've always found it interesting that a lot of businesses in a given space all launch around the same time, right? So it's mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, Uber and Lyft uh, or... Uh, Airbnb, like a lot of these businesses either will launch around the same time as a function of like where we are in the economy or as a function of technology. I don't know what that is for crowdfunding, but like Indiegogo, Kickstarter, which are a specific type of crowdfunding, they're crowdfunding based on rewards, not based on equity in a company. Mm -hmm. They launched, they all launched um, around 2007, 2008. But the the, the quick uh, and dirty round Kickstarter is this company um, is the largest crowdfunding platform for rewards-based crowdfunding. So not crowdfunding where you earn a piece of the company. Kickstarter's raised $7 billion. Uh, 22 million people have backed a project. And the reason the founder of the company started Kickstarter is because he was living in New Orleans in late 2001. He wanted to bring a pair of DJs down to play a show during 2002 Jazz Fest. He had this great venue. The guy was like all amped to have this show in Jazz Fest. And the show never happened. And it never happened because it was too much money. Because mm. he couldn't justify putting the money down. And so his idea was like the fact that there was a potential audience for this. And that audience didn't get to see them because there was no way for the audience to actually be able to buy tickets for the show and make it happen. That was the idea for Kickstarter. And now you talk about 14 years later and Kickstarter is massive. It gets 30 million hits to the site a month. Wow. I went down the rabbit hole. You said hole it's raised 7 looking... billion. You mean it's raised like on behalf of companies, I assume it hasn't. On, beh on behalf of companies. Gotcha, gotcha. And then their take is 5%. Got it. Um, so, but it's interesting. I, I haven't fully figured it out. They switched to being a public benefit corporation in 2015. Hmm. So I don't know how like it actually works in terms of. Can they be profitable? Is a public benefit corporation a nonprofit? I'm not sure. Uh, I have to look more into it. I know there are a few other companies that do this. I think Allbirds is actually uh, a public benefit corporation. Hmm. Um, but I was going down the list of interesting companies that have launched on Kickstarter. It's actually pretty crazy when you look at it. Peloton launched on Kickstarter. Allbirds launched on Kickstarter. Wow. Oculus launched on Kickstarter. But there are two beyond those companies that stand out to me. The the craziest one is in March of last year, March of 2022, was the biggest, most successful Kickstarter campaign of all time. Hmm. And if you had to guess what this campaign was, I'd give you 100 guesses and you'd probably be wrong. It wasn't technology. It wasn't a game. It was an author. So there's this guy, Brandon Sanderson. I've never heard of this guy. 
but he is an author who writes fantasy work and science fiction. Hmm. And I guess he's like prolific. He's written dozens of books and like his audience of fantasy readers freaking loves this guy. And in March of last year, he launched his Kickstarter campaign. I will say it was his second campaign. He had done one in the past and he raised $41 million. Oh my God. <laughs> he raised $41 million. What? 20, 20 million of it came in the first 72 hours. And just for context, the the um, most back campaign before that was Pebble, the watch company, which mm -hmm. we'll talk about in a minute. He he doubled that number. And the way that he did this whole thing was genius. First of all, he came out with a YouTube video on the day that the campaign went live. And he basically, he st I watched the video. He steps up to his audience. And he's like, I've been lying to you. That's how he starts. He goes, I've been Great lying hook. to you. Great hook. Yep. For the last year. My brain, I was bored. I didn't know what to do. And he goes into this whole thing about, he wrote four books in a year. So he wrote four books in the previous year and the, the manuscripts were done. And he was launching a Kickstarter where anyone who backed the project would get a book a quarter from him for the next year. And so you could either get it in ebook, audiobook, hardcover, or all of them bundled together. And I just started running the numbers because- you know, it I must hear, have been self-published, right? Like he didn't sell. Yeah, yeah, it's self-published. He has a uh, publishing his own publishing company called Dragoneer, uh, thirty people. And after I heard it was self-published, I was like, this guy must have made so much freaking money on this thing because I was here about like how publishing is very broken, and I always wonder like why don't more people self-publish, especially if they have audiences. So I'm going to do a quick breakdown. So my my thought, I'll, I'll tell you the punchline first. I believe that this guy made at least $9.5 million from this campaign. And typically a Kickstarter campaign is 60 days max. So I think he made $9.5 million in his pocket from this after all costs. He So I ran the numbers and basically on Kickstarter, you have different tiers. And so I'm going to take you through the tiers quickly. He... His lowest tier was $40. So $40 for a quarterly ebook, right? So I have to assume the cost of the ebook, like it, this has to be 90, 98% margin. There were 44,000 people that backed the ebook. So that's $1.7 million right there. Oh my God. Then the next tier was audiobooks. So $60 to get a quarterly audiobook, 40,000 backers. That's 2.4 million right there. Premium hardcover is where you actually have some cost that goes into it. And I looked up some numbers. It looks like the average cost of a hardcover with shipping in the book is $8. And he charged $160 for premium hardcover. And that includes four books, right? So $8 a book, $32 is his cost for it. And so $160 on the books minus the 32 times 49,000 people bought his hardcovers. That's $6.2 million in profit. And then there was a group of people that bought all formats, ebook, audiobook, and hardcover. All this to say, I believe he did Wait, but 12. How, why only nine and a half? What, why didn't he? He must have made 25. What? No, no, no. Okay. So, first of all, he had 12.4. Let, let me. So, ebooks, 1.7 million. Audiobooks, 2.4 million. And I'm just calling that pure profit. I'm assuming no cost. Right. The premium hardcover. I'm just taking out the cost right now of the books, and that's six point two million. And then for uh, all formats, which is hardcover, ebook, right. audiobook, uh, that's another two million. 
So that's 12, 12.4 million. Where's the 40 million? million? I thought in, you said he raised 40 when he did it. He did raise 40. And I didn't go through all of the tiers. Uh, I just went through the first four tiers. There were like eight tiers. So he could have had more. I also took out the salaries. Like this is unfair, but I took out the salaries of everyone at his publishing house. Right. So I there's 30 people. I assume $100,000 salaries, $3 million in salaries a year. Of course, these people are working on more than just those four books. Right. Um, so that's $9.5 million right there. But I only got to, to your point, I only got to like uh, – $15 million in revenue. I don't know where the other 40 came from <laughs> or the the other 25 came from. So this guy, I think in all fairness, he's it's probably more like 15 to 20 in profit. That's and this crazy. is just a, a single author, again, who has been writing fantasy books for the last 25 years. Right, right. What did you find in terms of the average success of something running on, like what's the average amount raised? And Yeah, so the average, I don't know the average amount raised, but... Um, there have been 581,000 projects that have been launched on Kickstarter and 230 of them, 230,000 um, have been successfully funded. So it's a 40% hit rate. So I, I didn't have a reference point, but it's pretty good. And so, you know, I started basically thinking about, and, and we can come back to kind of one of the other crowdfunding stories like Pebble, but just to to kind of contextualize this for a second and for people who have done crowdfunding or are thinking about it, why did I even approach this topic? The long story short of it is with my backyard game, I was originally going to, my, my whole plan was I was going to leverage my distribution. So I was going to leverage my Twitter following, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, et cetera, and just promote the hell out of this game to those people. And then I was also going to create like social videos and drive people to a website where people could pre-order. Mm -hmm. And the reason I decided that Kickstarter or crowdfunding would be the way to go is one, I think I have a really quality audience, but it's like a quality audience of entrepreneurial minds and founders. I don't know that it's a quality audience of people who throw plungers at boards. Like <laughs> I think there's yeah, some I... Venn diagram there, but I think it's like maybe 10% of the Venn diagram is my audience. So you're, I think you're that's so surprisingly conservative about this. It sort of blows my mind how how trigger shy I find you about this business. <laughs> like, dude, well, it, we just talked. We talked last time that you don't have. I'm a dad. I have kids. I throw I throw plungers at them in my backyard. Like, the, you don't need that big of a Venn diagram to start making money from it. Okay. Well, I so I agree that I am risk averse, but. Think about it from this perspective. What's the downside of doing Kickstarter? Okay, so on Kickstarter, first of all, Kickstarter's three biggest biggest categories are games, design, and technology. Right. So gaming is its biggest category. My view is, why wouldn't I have a Kickstarter campaign where I get organic traffic from their audience that's already built right. into Kickstarter? And how does that I can work, drive by the way? How do you actually get organic traffic from their audience yeah so like this is the whole game i would say it's very similar to like the product hunt game or you know there's mm, probably other analogies yeah. for where you for uh hacker news etc so the whole idea is and i'm actually i decided to work with an agency that is like a kickstarter agency uh it's uh they're 8800 bucks that i'm paying them uh for the next four months and basically the the whole trick is building up an email list so you want to build up a really qualified email list before you launch your campaign. And what they actually have you do, this agency, is they have you build a landing page 
where you send people to your landing the landing page with your product. They first put their email address in, and after putting their email address in, it prompts them to ask if they want to reserve a spot to get their Kickstarter product, your like the Kickstarter product at the biggest discount possible. Because oh, typically on Kickstarter, you just yeah, and yeah. to reserve your spot, it's one dollar. And they have found that that people who do the one dollar reservation are thirty times more likely right. than just an email address you that put in. Sense. And Which, so, by the way, hold on. As a, before we move on from that, for anyone listening who has never started a business or is in the early stages, one dollar makes a person thirty times more likely to actually buy something. So when you when you're launching something with just an email address versus a dollar, it's so different what the demand or the intent level is of a person who's given you any amount of money. That's basically what it proves versus just totally. an email. And it gives people giving you an email address aren't saying they're not really demonstrating that much interest. Just keep in mind the difference between email versus $1 30 times. That's crazy. And that and that's why at the end of the day, it's like so important to think about what's the ultimate outcome you want. Because like even in the early days of Morning Brew, we were not very like calculated about emails. We would just look at what is the, the lowest cost of acquiring emails to our list. Right. And then at some point we were like, actually, if advertisers are paying us and they're paying us based on the opens we get of our newsletter, we need people who actually open the newsletter. Oh, and right. so then it became... Let's spend on our marketing on channels that get us the lowest acquisition cost of the highest quality subscribers, which is people who open at least five of their first 10 newsletters. So yeah, 100%. So all this to say, um, we build up this email list and the goal is, the, the, the kind of unspoken rule is, if you can hit your campaign goal in the first 24 hours, you, get a bunch of you will get onto the homepage on Kickstarter. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, and so you get onto the homepage of Kickstarter, and then they drive you a ton of traffic. The average Kickstarter campaign gets uh, 30% of their traffic from Kickstarter. And so then like the whole f- calculation there is like you don't want a campaign goal that's too high because right. you want to blow through it. Um, so, you know, I think I'm probably going to just make my goal twenty five to $35,000. So all this to say that I think I'm going to be doing it on Kickstarter and the reason, like, I know you say I'm gun shy, but my view is like, what is the downside of doing no, this? No, there's no downside. Um, I think, but I, dude, I think you're, it's a yes and. It's like, yeah, yeah, do it and do your TikTok videos and do some paid media. <laughs> like, the point, the, my point, by the way, like, I've seen people go in both directions, right? I've seen people who launch a Kickstarter, they blow up and then they, they're not ready to launch a, an ongoing strategy and it's kind of a disaster. Yeah. Or the opposite, which is someone's running a, a capable, good sort of paid media program and an ongoing marketing, and then they launch a Kickstarter and actually augments everything they're doing. Um, so yeah, it's I, I just you're treating it a little bit like a holy grail, or like I'm picking up a like, hey, dude, I'm gonna do the Kickstarter, and that's gonna like it's, you're, you're like you remind me of the 22 year old version of the entrepreneur is like, then once my Kickstarter works, then I'll be in business, Jesse, and I'm like, dude, this is in business, like. Just I, commit to it and say, I can't tell you whether it's going to be a $5 million business or a $50 million business, but you don't care. So my point to you is the same I keep saying is, cool, just go run this business, man. Build it. Like It's going to be also, successful. Also, my, my newest idea around this business is that uh, it's going to be media company and backyard sports company where I'm literally going to create ESPN 8 The Ocho, like from Dodgeball, <laughs> out of the games that I create. And it will be like, leagues around the most absurd backyard games and so you can monetize it via like advertising and sponsorships on top of the games this is like very type seven of you all these random ideas (laughs) go do some work alex 
go go line some Facebook campaigns cla- cla- and get cla- a landing page. Cla- and- classic Enneagram jokes. Um, wait, uh, you mentioned something about like people who launch on Kickstarter sometimes like they haven't figured out their supply chain or like they they're not ready to do it. And I just wanted to mention Pebble. Have you heard of Pebble? Vaguely. Okay, so Pebble was before this guy Brandon Sanderson. He was the um uh Pebble was the most backed uh Kickstarter campaign of all time. Um I think in total they did 3 uh campaigns and it raised like 30 million. Um but one campaign I think did 20 million. Mm-hmm. And so the the whole idea of Pebble is like Pebble was the original smartwatch. It was a group of friends that went to the University of Waterloo together in 2008, and they literally, like, these guys built the original digital watch face that showed your exercise, your sleep, your music, and in 2012, they launched Pebble on Kickstarter for the first time. They raised $10 million from 68,000 people around the world, and they went on over the next few years to sell 2 million watches. And did over $230 million in sales. Wow. And uh, it's out of business now. I believe they sold to, uh, I think they sold to, to Fitbit. Yeah, they sold to Fitbit at the end of 2016. And I will say my assumption when I heard that this business failed was the Apple Watch. Like the Apple Watch was the killer of right. this once it came out. And at least the way that this guy, Eric, who's um, who is the CEO of the business, phrases it, is it seems like it had nothing to do with the Apple Watch. And I think there are some really good lessons in what he learned from this um, experience that are worth it for kind of like any entrepreneur, but especially entrepreneurs with physical products. Mm-hmm. So the the first thing that he explained of why they failed was they had their first product, like the, the normal Pebble. Then they had their version two um, that in 2015 – it didn't hit forecasts. So they had forecasted $100 million in sales in 2015 after doing their you know, 2012, and I think they did a 2014 fund, uh, Kickstarter. They projected $100 million in sales, and they only sold $82 million worth of product, product. So they had $18 million of just like this smartwatch inventory sitting around. Mm. And so they had to spend many months like trying to get themselves out of this dead inventory. The other thing that he talks a lot about is their initial, like the initial market for Pebble was what they describe as like the geeky hacker user base. Like right. I feel like it is the person who's always like um, the first person Bio-hacking in the adoption curve. Tech geeks, combo those. Exactly. And what basically happened was they thought to themselves after this first Kickstarter raise – how are they going to grow to a bigger audience? Like, how are they going to continue to scale sales when not everyone's a geek or a hacker? And so the first way they positioned it was as a productivity device. Then they ended up positioning it as a fitness watch. And basically his big learning was they never actually, in, in a weird way, they never actually found product market fit. Like they didn't actually talk to their customers to understand why they were using Pebble. They had no idea how to evolve the product. And the funny thing that he references, he said in the early days of the Apple Watch, I don't even remember this. He said like the Apple Watch was was positioned as this super premium product. He said like when it first came out, there was a gold version that Apple talked about yeah. that was a $10,000 version. Like I don't remember any of this, but he's like the the smartest decision that Apple made is they repos- reposition this thing for like a 
fitness and wellness centric community. Right. And he's like, we just never learned who our customer was. And I thought I thought it was such a great example of like, I made the assumption <laughs> that Apple killed this company. Like I assume a lot of big companies kill yeah. like earlier versions of it. And it wasn't the case. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, I think the other thing, just to pick on you more, like you're you're talking about who your customer is. And dude, you're just not going to, you don't know who your customer is. You yeah. know, like when we launched Unbloat a year ago, we thought, you know, we'd heard lots of ver- versions of it. We started selling it and we didn't, we know, we, we, by the way, we interviewed 50 different women, all these things. Like it wasn't, and then we launched it. We thought it was right. It didn't really work. Then we tried like really ho- like hokey ads and clickbait and whatever. But, and, and ultimately we started seeing who was sticking around and who was leaving and who was leaving us really good reviews. And we've sort of built, you know, we've, we've peeled the onion or whatever analogy you want to use. We've dialed in the target. It's taken us a year and now it's like premenopausal women, right? I didn't know anything about premenopausal women a year ago. Like, but we've been able to see through iteration that that is clearly who, who buys the product, who sticks with it, who writes good reviews. And thir- like, there's this whole bloating thing with 25 year olds on TikTok. They're not the target. Like, they don't, it's expensive. They don't. And so I would just encourage you, you're, you're, it's funny to see you do it because that's the other thing I was going to say to you, by the way, is you're not starting the Kickstarter because you need money, correct? Correct. You're just doing it for distribution. It's just marketing. I'm doing it for distri- I'm just doing it for distribution and to justify a relatively high dollar production order. Like I'm not I'm not willing to spend a hundred thousand dollars just running like running a production run of these right now. Given to your point, I don't know who the audience is, right? And I don't know if there's going to be enough of an audience. Like, would you? <laughs> and maybe 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 you did that. Like you can actually see right, like my risk tolerance, but like. When you launched Unbloat, I don't know what you spent to start the business, but like, it sounds like it took a while to figure out who the exact yeah. audience was. Like, you do you feel comfortable like dropping six figures without knowing? I mean, we did, right? The... That was part of like, <laughs> we, well, not, I mean, it was probably, we, we realistically committed about a quarter million dollars to all in. Why did to you get... feel the conf, why did you feel the confidence to do that? Um, I just the the we're we're blessed to live in the most amazing country in the world at the most amazing time in the world at 330 million people, and it's like, dude, there's so many human beings. That was the point I was making that that other episode, which to you, which is, you know, uh, to get back your money, your payback on a hundred thousand dollar order if you're making seventy dollars in gross profit is what twelve hundred of these things. Like yeah, you if you can't sell twelve hundred of these things, you got much bigger problems, my friend. It has nothing to do with the product. It's like sell them to gyms, donate them to schools for a tax write-off. Like you can, it just, I don't know that, that, that to me, I, I think you lose more. Let me put it this way. Instead of just picking on you, you lose more by being conservative and doubting yourself than you do by going at least for a period of time and a dollar amount of money. I am all in, I'm going to do everything I can to make this thing work. I'm going to stop asking whether or not it's going to work. I'm going to stop doubting whether or not it's going to work. And I'm going to yeah. pull every lever at my disposal. Sure. Do your Kickstarter, do your TikTok idea, and then you're going to learn, you're going to iterate, you're going to figure stuff out and you're going to do it again. And you're going to, and then you're going to go, oh, you know what? Mm, this is interesting. This is what I realized. Uh, but it's funny how much entrepreneurial doubt you have around the idea. Um, totally. When I think, and, and by the way, like, which is I normal, think- by the way, it's totally normal for, for anyone who, especially first time entrepreneurs. Like when I was in college, we'd start these business, we start a high school version of Facebook and we were like, we have to get to this number of users or we're not, we're done with the business. We're not going to keep spending our time on it. And like, 
it's just funny to see you in that sort of uh, totally. Stage. And by the way, like just to get a little, I would say introspective for a second, I think there's a reason for all of this, right? Like I think if I was to pull back the layers and be like, why am I behaving in this way right now? I think part of it is because to your point, like because money matters less to me today, it's like the incremental loss of money matters a lot more than the incremental gain of money. And so, like, I'm trying to behave in accordance with that belief. Right. I think the other one is there's still a part of my brain, no matter, like, how much confidence people in the world has in me, that I was a one-trick pony. Right. And that what I've accumulated thus far is all I will accumulate. Right. And so I very much have like a scarcity, a cash hoarding mindset. mindset. Well, it's like a scare. Yeah. I feel scarcity. I feel you. A- exactly. You recoiling. I can't let this go. Even this. Here, here's a reframe for you. If my coach was on the call, he'd say, uh, Alex, are you willing to, w- if I if I told you for the low price of $150,000, you could learn incredible entrepreneurial lessons, stretch yourself in ways you didn't think were possible. Um, are you willing to spend that much to learn and to become, you know, to develop yourself as a professional? Yeah, and I think the answer would be, Yes, but I I would only feel comfortable with so many at bats of that learning happening without making money. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but there's no way, dude. There's zero chance that you you spend 150 and you nobody buys a single set of this thing, right? Yeah, I agree with that. And so it's even that number is way too high. Which, by the way, is true for Unbloat also. Like it's the first company we started, Puforia. True story. We still sell 100 SKUs every every month. Like the thing is just making like ten, fifteen thousand dollars a month. I don't know how. I don't know how people are getting to it. Who like did someone run that business? No, it's just it's the subscribers. <laughs> they, they it's the like so we've actually made back. I think all in all that business maybe lost a hundred grand, not even like eighty grand. Yeah, um, that doesn't include anything that's happened with envelope. So you'll figure it out. It's kind of my point, right? I think yeah. like I believe I believe you'll figure it out one way or the other, and it'll be a valuable experience for you. And so I want you to go all in and I want you to... I I agree with you. And I think, you know, again, my goal for myself is to get to a place where obviously I'm still smart with my money, um, but my I'm not conflating um, being smart with my money as actually operating out of a scarcity mindset because right. I'm, I doubt my abilities. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's my goal for myself as I grow. Um, there's a few ways By the we way, can take hold this. On, I one think... quick aside to totally funny random story yeah. or, or thing I want you to help me with, actually. So I, in 15 months, 14 months, I'm going to be 40, turning 40. And I want to have like a massive extravaganza party in St. Louis, maybe even like a conference style party, like invite everyone, everyone listening, everyone on Twitter. And I'm trying to get Nelly to like perform <laughs> at my birthday. <laughs> Why Nelly? Was Nelly your favorite growing yeah, up? Yeah, St. Louis. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so during COVID, I'm part of YPO here. They got him. And I don't want to say how much, but it was like, it was like pretty cheap, like che- cheap to the point where I was like, oh, like I could probably do that as a part of the birthday expense. Now, apparently that's yeah. all over. And now it's like six figures to book. Like it's really. Oh, really? Yeah. So I don't know, this whole conversation around crowdfunding got me thinking like, I need to put a budget together. And I'm going to go on Twitter and here and be like. Come to my party, donate <laughs> money towards the the Nelly fund to Jesse to have Nelly perform at Jesse's fortieth birthday party. Uh, I think I think that is a great idea. By the way, I had um I had a few ideas 
as I was going through Kickstarter of just like businesses that I think could be built in and around Kickstarter or separate from Kickstarter. I want to get your thought on the first is I've, I've been wondering like why there isn't a software version of Kickstarter. Mm. And so what I mean by that is like, okay, you have product hunt, but when you have product hunt, a business has already launched. It already exists. Like there's already some, somewhat of a team. Like why isn't there a crowdfunding platform, a reward-based crowdfunding platform where you have a prototype of a product of software and you go live on this platform. (laughs) I was going to say Kickstarter with a D, but it doesn't come out the right way. Um, (laughs) And and, and so um, it gives entrepreneurs validation about if they should push forward with this software so they can go out and hire a technical uh, person to actually build the thing. Yeah. And And the best cost a dollar. You have to make people pay money because we know that paying a dollar is a much bigger exactly. signal than just giving your email or vote. Exactly. But I don't I don't understand. Like, I, I'm just going to use a random example of you. An idea of a business that <laughs> I tweeted about a while ago um, that I was thinking about just having someone build on the side was a, an add-in to Google Meet or Chrome uh, or sorry, Google Meet or Zoom or like WebEx where you put in the the salary of everyone in a meeting. And as the meeting's ticking, it yeah, tells yeah. you the cost of that meeting, right? I, I ultimately don't think it's a good idea, and I could explain why. But, like, why why is there not a place where I put that on the site and people can, to your point, put a dollar to reserve yeah. their spot and they get some – like, why does why does this not exist for software? I love it. It's kind of like a media company, too, because they're like, oh, there's almost like a Shark Tank or your 60-second startup it, vibe that exactly. came. Exactly. A, a buddy of mine here in St. Louis started a business called Thumbraise. And it actually was one of the inspirations for Kahani. Like you could you could see a vertical video of the entrepreneur pitching. And I think he ended up pivoting to more of a hiring platform, like just away from mm-hmm. fundraising altogether. Cause it's just like there was some network effects issue. But I, I think the yeah, I think it's a good idea. I think you gotta get you have to figure out how to get people like on Hacker News or like on Product Hunt. You have to have the people who engage with something like that. Totally. It's really an idea that that Product Hunt should do. Oh yeah, I think like product hunt, like they literally just go one step early. Pre-launch, yeah, exactly. Or pre- exactly. idea stage product hunt, idea hunt. Yeah. So that that's one. The other one is so as I was going through this whole Kickstarter thing, and I told you that I'm working with this agency and their process is helping me build out like what is the brand for my product, then the landing page to get people to put in emails, then getting people who put in emails to re- reserve their spot for a dollar. Uh, all like building up the the list for launch. And one of the ways they build up those reservations is they run a fair bit of Facebook ads, um, what like pre-campaign. Right. And so I was reading a book by the the founder of this agency and he was basically talking, and this is like child's play for you, but like he was talking about like lookalike audiences and he, he did this um, exercise that was called the Dream 20. Mm-hmm. If there were 20 brands in the world that you would die to have their uh, your product be put in front of their customers. Right. What are those twenty brands? And I wrote down the twenty brands for the plunge. Um, that I actually thought like it made sense. Um, here, I'll just I'll read a few of them to you. Um, the the brands I wrote down for my backyard game were, let's see, we had, um, okay. Happy Dad, which is uh, like Nelk Boys seltzer brand. Mm-hmm. Nelk Boys is like this big YouTube group. Uh, Chubby's, Cornhole, Can Jam, Yeti, uh, Dude Perfect, Barstool Sports, Coleman or Weber, Some Hunting Company, Bud Light, 
uh, it, this uh, church group that um, the founder Spikeball told me was like one of his really early passionate communities. DraftKings, Axe Throwing, Manscaped, and there are a few others. Yeah. So anyway, I, that was my dream 20. But um, as I was going through it, a thought I had is like, I want to target a certain type of demographic. So like one demographic I thought would be interested in the plunger game is like the the college student who's into college sports and is into drinking at a Big Ten school. Right. And then I was trying to figure out like what brands does that 19-year-old interact with a lot? And I couldn't find an answer to that. Mm. And so one idea is like, is there a service where you can put in a type of person, like 18 <clears throat> to 22, gender, et cetera, interest, and it spits out the brands they're most likely to search for? Right. What are your thoughts on that? There is a there, the the founder of SEO Moz started a company that does a version of that. Um, well, I'm looking it up now while we're talking. Uh, new company, Spark Toro. Check out Spark Toro, and I actually think okay. they may do what you're saying, which is they even potentially plug into Facebook or uh, audience research at your fingertips. Boom. There's also a business called. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. this is a hunt. This is 100% it. There's a business called Clearbit, which does this for B2B, which is really powerful. Uh, Clearbit was literally like our saving grace in the early days of the brew. I don't know if we use it for all of its functionality, but in the early days of the brew, when I needed to find the email address for a marketer at a company to go email uh, to pitch advertising in Morning Brew, the Clearbit plugin to Gmail was like the thing that I used to find someone's email address. Yeah. Well, the, and anyway, the other thing I was going to say to you is we were, we were talking about this offline a little bit, but the new Facebook, you know, at Paradigm is targeting like creative is the new targeting. So for anyone listening, running Facebook campaigns, you don't need to target anymore. It's broad. You let Facebook's algorithm figure it out. But what you could do is you could write the brand name in the ad copy and say like cornhole lovers. Yeah. You know, and then have like a picture of Cornhole and, and maybe break it or something like a, like a funny ad that engages those people. And then Facebook's algo will naturally start to find those people. And so that's just a thought for you is like you can well, j just explain you're like you're glossing over it because I feel like this is just like so in your DNA. But explain how there's been that shift, like what what used to be important with Facebook advertising and like why now actually like me targeting a a cornhole audience actually isn't in, in my best interest. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So the, the 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 nuance here is there's a difference between what's targeting and ad serving, right? So targeting is like if I say target a hundred thousand people in St. Louis who you know uh, like the St. Louis Cardinals or whatever, and they're between the ages of forty and forty five. That's who I tell Facebook to target. Who they choose to serve the ad to is based on their decisioning. They don't automatically show it to every single one of those people. And one of the ways you can know this is if you actually try, like we've done this as a test, you could do like a, an ad like that. If you target clicks and you ask Facebook, I want clicks, that's my objective versus I want leads versus I want purchases, the funnel will look completely different even though your targeting is all the same, which means they're making serving to, they know who tends to click and just click. They tend, They know who tends to click and buy. So they they know based on people's behavior, they see all this data they don't share with advertisers that make their systems more effective. So 10 years ago, you did all the targeting because you had to tell them their systems were dumb. They didn't know what to do. Now their systems have gotten so smart that they'll put an ad out and they'll quickly see who, who stops scrolling, who just likes it, who clicks on it and engages with it. And when you target, because you're limiting their freedom, they actually charge you more because they have less auctions you can be in at one time. 
Whereas when you say go after anybody, I don't care. You lets them explore freely, which ultimately means you can be in more auctions, which is a higher chance of finding a, a good price point and actually finding a better audience. So that's why their algorithm is like AI, whatever, super smart, learns very yeah. quickly, and it's able to kind of put the ad in front of the right person at the right, you know, right place, right person, right time. So all of this to say, if you're doing Facebook marketing, I assume it's the same for Instagram because it's the same engine. Like, it actually isn't your prerogative today to like pick brands or lookalike audiences of brands yeah. to run your ads to because Facebook is just smarter than you. And, and yeah, there's certain end- advanced strategies you can still hack, but I wouldn't worry about them if you're listening and you're spending less than five hundred thousand dollars a month on Facebook. I think the one thing I would tell you though, just as an example, also of why like I want to get you out of this audience thinking too is. One of the things that Facebook's really good at that they don't surface for anybody is like buying intent. Like as an example, go to three meal kit websites after you listen to this and then go to your Facebook feed and you're going to see a bunch of meal kit ads. It doesn't matter. Your demo, who you are, doesn't matter. That What matters is, oh, this person seems like they're in the market for healthy food solutions and I'm going to deliver to them. So your gaming thing, like it may or may not matter who the person is. It may or may, what matters is in that moment, someone's looking at Spikeball and a few other related things. And then they're going to go, oh, you're looking for fun games? Here you go. Here's an ad for totally. the plunge, right? And anyway, that's also part of how the the algorithm does its magic. Well, and I think it's, again, like I think what's amazing is it's very nuanced, the stuff you're talking about, but it's like widely applicable for anyone who spends on Facebook totally. marketing, which is a, a lot of people. And so you mentioned this at the beginning, but it's like now so much of the game of driving just like quality leads or sales from marketing is on the creative. So it's on like the images and the copy. It sounds like that's 90% of it now, which led to the other idea that I brought up with you that I know you have thoughts on, which is as I was, you know, Jesse was telling me, he's like, all that matters now is what your creative is for your ads. And so I was thinking to myself, and I'm always thinking from the perspective of like, what is a group of, of skill workers or knowledge workers that aren't necessarily paid highly in their current career, but if you use them differently, you could they they can be make more money and also you can build a business around them. Right. So the current idea is an ad creative specific agency. So be super focused because ad creative is most important now, where you hire stand-up comedians, Mm -hmm. copywriters from ad agencies, where ad agencies are notorious for not paying well, and they provide a constant flow of creative for the paid marketing teams of companies. What's What's your thought on the idea? Yeah, well, there's two things I think to hit on that are important. One is... You know, the old school of writing a really good ad, you know, uh, Ogilvy or whatever, the famous people of advertising and marketing, they were all about writing good messages and copy. Television's the same way, right? Like, we can still remember TV ads, the the Santa packs with the, with the polar bears. And what's interesting is the internet started to complicate it with all this stuff, but it's so funny because now it's basically gotten back to the origin of marketing, which is... It's not some hacky thing. Like Ampush spent a lot of time hacking. We would figure out all these bidding changes and algos and all this stuff. And then it, it's now back to, can you speak to your audience? Can you deliver them a message that explains the value? Can you hook them and get their attention? So it's funny in some ways just to think about it for anyone doing it is stop worrying about tricks and just start focusing on delivering a message to the, like a compelling message to that audience of why your product is the right thing for them. That's just one aside. And then, yeah, yep. I think the idea is great. I think... You know, there's uh, yours is kind of a vertical play with the comedian idea, but there's, you know, these businesses, tube science, narrative ads, uh, ready set. There's a whole cottage industry rickshaw that all they do is make creative, 
using like kind of out of work or, or in between work actors in, in Hollywood and maybe offshore, you know, growth assistant style editors for their video. And they'll produce a ton of them. They won't even charge the brands for them. But the genius in their model is they'll say, whatever you choose to use of the media, you're going to have to pay me a percentage of that media spend. And so if I'm a media buyer and their stuff is working 30% better, I'm going to allocate as many dollars as I can to it, even though I have to pay a, a, a rake on it. And they've crushed it. I mean, they've been very success stories. They, they, by the way, they all started in 2016, 17, like their old relative or their new relative to the ambushes of the world because they yeah. really saw that trend and capitalized on it. And I think your version's a verticalized version. You could you could do that for men's products or comedic approach or other genres essentially that I think could be as successful as a as any of them. Oh, totally. Yeah. I've been also thinking about like how do you use like voiceover actors uh who like are in between gigs of getting commercials, or how do you use like models who are trying to make it in the modeling industry or really good looking people for ad creative? Yeah. Um, like how do you leverage them as well? And dude, so, this is a crazy a category. One thing just most people don't appreciate this, I think, is like have you heard of SEM Rush? I have, but it's I like haven't a, used it. It's like a search analytics SaaS tool. It gives you all the data on what your other advertisers. You know, do you know how big it is? What what its valuation market cap is? My guess is it's a billion dollar business. It's like a three billion market cap public. It's insane. And you know, Facebook is a hundred and ten billion in revenue, something crazy like that. Like, just think that there's a ten to twenty percent on top of that of software services, etc. Entire industry built around Facebook. And so that's what makes businesses like this incredibly viable. That's what Ampush's whole, you know, and, and it's funny because when I first started Ampush, I thought oh, this seems like a good opportunity. And then I did all the like nerdy MBA math. And it turns out that on average for every ad dollar of any platform, there's about 20 to 30 cents in services, support, software, tools to make use of that platform. And so it's, those are it's like, while these marketing services and software are such huge industries. So just people should realize how big the economies are around each of these spaces. It's wild. Um, okay. I want to finish up with given like kind of all this weaved in and out of crowdfunding Kickstarter, how my game is pivoting to this launch strategy. I just want to share a few final thoughts on when I think it makes sense to go the crowdfunding route and feel free, you know, to share if you agree or disagree and also anything else that comes to mind. So, um, my view is that first, like Jesse said, if you're a first time entrepreneur, and you want to test the waters and you don't want to, especially in the world of physical products where it can cost a lot of money to do a production run of a product, it's a great way to just mitigate risk before uh, taking taking on more exposure. So just to use the example, like I've invested $12,000 in this game so far. That's how much money I've put into this. If I didn't have Kickstarter and I had to manufacture a thousand games tomorrow, my investment goes up to $100,000. Right. What Kickstarter allows me to do, and especially, like he said, is helpful if you're a first-time entrepreneur, three months from now, I know, do I have $100,000 worth of orders before I place the order with the factory? Right. So that's It may, it may let you know that. It, it may. Because it, 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 it would be a false negative, just to be clear, right? Like, if you, if you mis-execute it, if the timing isn't right, like there's a lot of reasons it could work that aren't, it, it could could potentially be a very positive signal. Yes, 100%. Like I, to that point, what is for sure top of mind for me is like, what do I do if this doesn't work out? Like if I don't hit my campaign goal, do I just end the game altogether? Like how do I know if there's demand or not? So exactly. it's for sure. Which by the way, yeah, hold on, point. as a quick aside, we should tell people like, you wouldn't. 
I don't think you would. I think you would try at least three things and you'd put another year of your time into this before you'd walk away, which I think for people who are doing entrepreneurial things, like obviously if something, if you try something and it works, hell yeah, go crazy. Right. But also every time I've tried something the first time, it should never worked. And, and so I think, I think the, one of the best kind of like rules of thumb are like, first of all, it has to have all your focus and energy. Second of all, you got to try a handful of things in a, in a serious way, not in a, off the side of your desk way. And then ultimately you like time box things. And if after a year, you know, before we shut it down, it's like just after a certain amount of time, it wasn't where we wanted it to be. And that was just, yep. that was it. Totally. And then uh, just a few other thoughts. I think also at the end of the day, just understanding what is the cost of making this decision. The cost of doing Kickstarter is that you're paying basically 5% for access to distribution and maybe avoiding some of the headaches of like creating your own site because they have these pre-built in tools. So if you're willing to pay 5% for access to the distribution of an audience, um, it could be worth it. And I would say, especially for Kickstarter, like if you're in the gaming or uh, design and tech category, it, it makes it even more interesting. Um, and so can I those add are a few things that come to, to mind. That? Yeah. If you're going to do a Kickstarter, I mean, this is true for anything, obsess about it for a month or two before you launch it. Like, yeah. if I were interviewing an entrepreneur and wanted to make sure they were ready, like, you did all this research, you know who the biggest is, the average. If I was, oh, you're going to do a Kickstarter. Tell me, what what are the five most similar games? How much did they raise? When did they? Oh, if they yeah. couldn't answer that, then I'd be like, your Kickstarter is not going to work. Like, oh, it doesn't yeah. even matter. It's yeah. not even going to be a signal because you haven't done the work to go deep enough to obsess over getting that. And that was the same thing for running Facebook ads. That's the same thing for being good at email marketing. It's like, there is a, I, my rule of thumb, you know, is 90 days of more than 50% of your time and energy to crack something like to truly yeah. walk away and say, this didn't work. Um, and so it's totally good. just people don't realize that sometimes they go, oh, I'm gonna throw up a Kickstarter and we're gonna see if it works or not. And then it doesn't work. And they're like, Oh, it didn't work. Yeah. I mean, ju- just to be clear, I've made the shift to Kickstarter in the last week. But what came before that was three months of not planning on doing Kickstarter until I got new information, right? spending four hours writing an, an investor update to, we don't actually have investors for the plunge. I just wrote one to force myself to think deeply about it. I've played the game for, I don't know, 500 hours already. And I've talked to the founder of Spikeball, the founder of CrossNet, and the founder of CanJam. Like all those things happened before getting to this place. I love it. Um. Anything else before we uh, call it a day? No, there's this. Well, there's one last thing. There's this really cool place that just launched in St. Louis called the Armory. I'll send you videos of it. But Is it's it a like gun this, range? It's no. It's like a, it used to be an armory. Like it used to keep yeah, yeah. Uh, stuff there. It's been reinvented as like a adult playground bar thing. So they have like ten cornholes. Oh, they have I love like that. a bunch of the vo- those volley or the four way nets. They have jumbo ping pong, and like I'm oh, sure I, I can that. get you like a meeting. The, the, the mass. The massive bucket. I'll send you pictures and videos of it, but I'm sure I could get you a meeting with them and you can sell 10 of these to them. So, Oh, totally. And that's like the ultimate strategy with this individual game also is that like there's a B2B play where people who want axe throwing in their place but don't want to actually set up axe throwing right. can uh, can do this. So great yeah, idea. I totally agree. Um, cool, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Hope you enjoyed the deep dive into kickstarter some of the the craziest stories around these platforms of 
Pebble and then the, the, the author who raised $42 million on his campaign. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I want to piss my team off. And so uh, say what up, shoot an email to the crazy ones at morningbrew.com. Say hi, maybe say a little bit about yourself and we will get back to you. We want to build relationships with you all. And uh, until next episode, thank you uh, all for listening. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.